From CoLab and MIT, hello and welcome to Hear There Be Dragons. I'm Jess Myers. For this show, I spoke to seven New York natives from all over the city about safety and identity. The episodes that follow are their stories and experiences. This episode's theme is gentrification. In this episode, we'll hear from... My name is Sina Jacobs. My name's Carmen Chung. Hi, my name's Stephanie Castillo. My name is Justin Steele. Each of the stories that follow talk about gentrification. For native New Yorkers, the rapid change of gentrification can be jarring. Neighborhoods that see rapid increase of wealthy tenants can become foreign to those who know its history. Displacement of long-term residents and erasure of cultural landmarks can make these changes feel like a loss or even a theft. Before talking about gentrification, it's important to talk about white flight that preceded it during the turmoil of the 1960s. The next voice you'll hear is Sina. My name is Sina Jacobs. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was raised from the time I was born to seven years in Crown Heights. And uh, from Crown Heights, I moved to Jamaica, Queens. And I'm 59 and a half years old. And I currently work in an elementary school, PS128 in Brooklyn, as a school aide. Well, when, 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 when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I was in junior high school. So what year was that? Was I in eighth grade or was I in seventh grade? But anyway, it was a very rough time. And a lot of my friends didn't go to school because the parents were afraid. See, the school was very, very diverse. We had a lot of people bust into that school. It was mixed. We had a lot of black children, a lot of white children. And it was very, it was rough because back then I was picked on a lot because I was white and I had a black boyfriend. But anyway, I went to school because I, I wanted to go to school. I said, I'm not gonna be afraid of anybody I'm going to school. A lot of my friends stayed home. I went to school and it was not a very pretty day. The white kids got beaten up because of what happened, because of the situation. Just, it wasn't good. One of my friends walked me home that day, it was okay. But uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Uh, well, actually, a lot of my friends did move. Well, my white friends, anyway, they were all running. They were all, they were, leave, they were leaving. They moved to Co-op City in the Bronx, who moved to Far Rockaway, who moved to Brooklyn, who moved to Long Island. All the, all the, the my white friends were leaving. But I had one girlfriend, Gail, whose mother offered me to stay with them for the seven months until we graduated from Springfield. And my mother said, no, I want her out of here. Because she felt the neighborhood was changing. Um, she didn't, did not feel safe there any longer. She didn't like, she really didn't care for my friends too much because I did have a lot of black friends. I had, I had Ricky, Ricky was my, my boyfriend. He was, well, his mother was white and his father was black. And um, she wasn't too crazy about the element. So it was just, she wanted to move. My brother was no longer with us because he was married. So we got a smaller apartment than Bensonhurst. To tell you the truth, I would have rather stayed in Rochdale. <laughs> the return of wealthier tenants who once sought to flee the city can lead to complete transformations of neighborhoods, often displacing long-term residents who created the cultures and communities their neighborhoods and New York itself became famous for. 
Williamsburg is often held up as an extreme example of such transformation. For Sina and Carmen, who are resigned to these changes, Williamsburg is just another old memory, while Stephanie is more critical of the change. Williamsburg, oh my God. My mother used to take me to Williamsburg when I was a little girl, and we used to go down, she used to go to some stores around there. And, um, well, I remember Williamsburg being like very, um, also a Jewish neighborhood, a lot of Hasidic, a lot of Orthodox. Um, I think that there are certain spots in Williamsburg that are still like that. And then I think it was changing and then it changed again to like more, a more preppy area. A lot of young people, they want to live near the city and maybe the rents were more affordable in Williamsburg than the city. So that's where all these yuppie preppy people started renting apartments. That's what probably happened. Well, my name's Carmen Chung. I am 24 years old and I grew up in the Lower East Side of New York, about five minutes outside of uh, Chinatown. And currently I'm a first year master's student at uh, MIT studying urban planning. I mean, New York is always going through a lot of changes and I haven't seen it firsthand, but I can kind of tell also by uh, where my friends hang out and where my friends go now when I go back to New York. Um, Williamsburg, which is in Bro Brooklyn, is now a really hip area where a lot of uh, young people go to party, uh, whereas when I was in high school, that was a kind of still dangerous uh, area that's filled was filled with mostly like lofts and empty abandoned warehouses, and now it's a really popular place to go visit. Hi, my name is Stephanie Castillo. Um, I am 23 years old. I grew up in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the South Bronx, but I currently live in Co-op City, and. Um, I am a community organizer and also a writer. I don't know, Williamsburg is just weird. There, I just feel so, like so much social insecurity because there's just so many white people um, and not just like normal white people, but like white people who think that like, they can be like so carefree and like, it's like they don't care too much, but they care just enough about like their appearance and their look and like their whole like vibe. But e it just reminds me of like the super privileged white kids at school who can afford not to care about shit. I've gone out to Brooklyn. I just don't understand the streets out there. <laughs> so I also feel very vulnerable out there too. And I think I still carry a lot of old school Brooklyn talk. Like my dad has um, I have family who grew up in Williamsburg before it was like trendy hippie Williamsburg. So like being out in Brooklyn, not knowing the area, still makes me feel like a little fidgety. As wonderful as it may be for New York to feel safer, there is often a consequence to such radical shifts. When more affluent tenants move into a neighborhood, the city takes notice. The garbage is collected, the potholes are paved, the 311 calls are attended to, but the communities that stayed through the roughest times are rarely the ones that benefit from these improvements. As Justin remembers his childhood walks through Harlem, he weighs the changes he sees now against the possibility of losing the neighborhood he grew up with. My name is Justin Steele. I'm 37 years old. 
I'm from the Upper West Side, West 89th Street, and I am a professor. Spending time in, in Harlem now, it, it feels increasingly different and so vulnerable. The, you know, there's, it's, it's great in some sense that the church, this, there's this church steeple on, on Lenox Avenue, south of 125th, that always iconically was in my mind because it was missing the top of it. And of course, that's been replaced, which is wonderful. Um, what doesn't feel wonderful is, you know, and there's all, the, all these buildings that were abandoned that have been renovated and that are lived in, which is also wonderful. But what doesn't feel wonderful is that it, it seems as though it's losing um, its affordability for people who've lived there for a long time. It's losing um, the character that it has long had um, because, because so many longtime Harlem residents and so many working class and poor people can't afford to live there now. Even as they lament the loss of neighborhood character, New York natives moving through the city are not immune to gentrification politics. A new job, a move, a slight increase in income can transform you from the gentrified to the gentrifier. While looking for an apartment in Harlem, the neighborhood where she went to high school, a Stephanie was concerned about being an unwelcome intruder in a place she once belonged. Like my mom doesn't understand gentrification. Like, I mean, she does. But she's just like, why are people moving to these neighborhoods? Because she still has that mentality, like, Harlem is Harlem, the Bronx is, you know, like, so like, how could people be paying thousand dollar rooms in these communities that, where the sidewalks are all messed up, like, she's still like, girl, no, save and then move to like 20th Street and live good. She's like, why are you gonna struggle in Harlem for? And I'm, I'm like, is she like I can afford to live in Harlem? Like I can't afford to live like I don't know deeper into the city. The way gentrification in Harlem works is like weirder. Like comes from like one ten up to maybe like one twenty fifth, and then like maybe like one twenty seventh. But like once you get up to one thirty fifth, like you can like it's Harlem. Like it's like just Harlem. I was checking out an apartment in East Harlem around like 105th street but it was like on first avenue and it was like in in um a street where like the the sidewalks were like not well kept there was um like a low and not not a super tall project but it was like there was a project across from it um and then there was like a church and kind of like an abandoned loft but that, that building just fell off because it was like, literally like all the signs of gentrification. Like there's this one nice building on this one block of like nothing. <laughs> um, not only did it feel unsafe to, I was thinking like if I walk back at night and this is like a pretty desolate street, like what's up, what's good. So like those things came up for me. And that was one of the reasons why I didn't decide to move forward with it. Um, but also just kind of like, what was I contributing? I, I wasn't really contributing anything because I'm not around anything to have an impact. I'm just like in the siloed, beautiful building. Um, where the only thing that's cute about it is the apartment itself. With so much gentrification going on the, in the area that like, I would be looked at as like, you're a, gentri like you're a gentrifier. Um, and as like someone who understands like 
what it is to have gentrifiers coming into your community. Like, I didn't want to put myself in that position, you know? Like, I saw, like, this group of, like, three girls unloading their vans, like, three white girls unloading their vans, and this, like, black couple walks past them, and they're just, they're just like, oh, my God, more of them, you know? And it's, like, I I feel that struggle, you know? Like, and I didn't want to be looked at as that. Gentrification is unsettling change. Little alterations like a renovated church steeple can seem like a positive change from the outside, while natives hold their breath, seeing it as the first hint that the people, the landmarks, the neighborhood that they once knew, may now slowly disappear. At the same time as New Yorkers themselves change, an act as simple as hunting for an apartment can turn them from a concerned onlooker to an active participant in that erasure. Just as violence in the first episode steals our feelings of familiarity, gentrification can do the same thing, making once familiar neighborhoods and our place in them seem strange to us. Thank you for listening. This has been Here There Be Dragons. I'm Jess Myers, a grad student at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Each person I interviewed for this podcast also drew a map of their childhood and adulthood in the city. You can find a link to those in the show notes. If you visited or lived in New York and want to share your experiences with me, download the base map, use the maps in our gallery as your guide, and draw your own experiences of safety and danger in the city. I'll post them in the gallery. Send those to us at collabradio at mit.edu. Or you can record a comment or question about the episode by calling into 1-888-821-87563, extension 58258. Some of those might be a part of the final episode in the series. Music for Here There Be Dragons is written by New York-based trio Octopus 2000. Check out more of their music on Facebook and join us next episode to talk about the projects.